Hey gang, welcome to episode 130 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, your slightly bassier voice of everything immersive, coming to you from No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles. Uh, good news, this week on the show, you don't have to listen to this, uh, you know, Sith Lord sounding voice the entire time. Uh, that's because Catherine Yu, who holds it down for us in New York City, uh, is interviewing someone I've wanted on the show for a very long time. That would be Ida Benedetto, who is an amazing designer and scholar of um, experiences. Uh, Ida worked uh, on a lot on what they call trespass experiences, which means you trespass places. Um, helped design the Night Heron, which was a legendary, uh, like, I guess it was a trespass. Well, you'll, you'll hear it all in, in the episode uh, coming up ahead. Uh, and, and a note on before we start um, in, in a second. But first, of course, the business. Uh, the business, of course, is the Patreon, which your know, Patreon's back to being normal, so we can all chill out. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. And uh, first, I want to thank Gabriel Hardman for uh, being our first backer after everything uh, became normal again. And I also want to thank uh, Yan Budman uh, for jumping in at uh, the friend of the show level. So Yan is now a sustaining backer. So when I say the sustaining backers for no proscenium are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, and Lonnie Hanson, I will now also be saying... Ian Budman as part of that. So we've got four people who are dropping in uh, 50 bucks a month to help this show work. Um, wow. Thank you for the bottom of my heart. What a wonderful uh, Yule present that was. Uh, also another wonderful Yule present was the uh, Yule log that Monica Miklas of Capital W made uh, for her holiday party. Oh my God, that thing was really good. Speaking of Capital W, I didn't just mention because I wanted to mention food. Um, they, along with Third Rail Projects, were listed on BuzzFeed's uh, 19 Best Plays and Musicals of 2017. Um, so uh, Ghostlight for Third Rail Projects was on there. And uh, so was Red Flags, which um, I am incredibly proud of them for, for getting on that list. There are Broadway musicals on that list and, and a tiny show for 1% of a time about... The worst state you could ever be on, also on that list. So, what a, what a wonderful time for immersive here. Suddenly it became Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I'm tying my shoes. We're gonna go into the neighborhood now. Um, I am sick. Um, I'm angry. I'm very angry about being sick. Um, because there's there's this is vacation time, and I'm off the day job, and I I have all this time theoretically, to uh, focus on immersive, and my head just is like, oh, just put me in a bucket of ice. Um, so, yeah, but we are going to be cranking out a lot of material, uh, a little bit about what's coming up on, on No Presidium, the website, after this interview. But uh, first, we want to get to the interview. I'm, I'm going very, 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 oh, there's some old, I can't remember, some old Saturday Night Live skits about, about NPR. It's feeling that way right now. Um, before we do all that, um, there's one note that uh, Ida actually wanted uh, to, to to make a correction before we get into the interview today. 
Um, which is at a certain point, uh, Catherine's going to ask her if anyone ever got, uh, if they ever got caught or if anyone ever got injured and she wanted to make it and and she said no. Um, and then she remembered, oh wait, there's this one time we did get caught and we had to like leave the space. Um, um, and she actually says, I think that slipped my mind because being caught in that case actually helped the experience and nothing bad happened. The guests kind of loved it and were feeling brazen about the police showing up. I actually had to talk some of them into moving, but we all moved without much hassle and the picnic went on and that was that. So despite all the times they've, they've done stuff that is technically illegal, uh, no one's ever been arrested. So there you go. Um, We'll talk, we'll talk more afterwards. I'm going to get a chance to listen to this one, uh, sort of with you guys. Uh, I'm going to, I'm doing a drive today. And so I'm, I'm pre-planning my listen time. Um, yeah, I'm so excited. We got this interview. Ida is the bee's knees. So thank you, Catherine. And here we go. Yeah, so introduce yourself if you could please. My name is Ida Benedetto, and I did a big research project called Patterns of Transformation that was inspired by the trespass adventures I used to do through an organization I co-founded called Sexton Works. I'm currently a senior designer at a transformation and management consultancy called SY Partners. So how did you get here? What's been your journey? Uh, how I got here? Well, wh- where do you want me to start? How far back do we go? Uh, maybe were you always interested in transformation as a kid? Was uh, there a moment in time where you realized that's what you were actually interested in? I don't think I figured out that that was what I was interested in specifically until towards the end of Sextant Works. Um, and that came very much out of the research process I was doing. I knew that at Sextant Works, the kinds of adventures we were doing consistently provoked a sense of wonder and awe and possibility in people that tended to go beyond our expectations. And so I figured we were probably doing something right that we were taking for granted. And so I took a step back from the design process and wanted to look at adjacent experiences that might give me some insight into process because I really wanted to be able to inspire and teach other folks because the kinds of experiences we were doing were small and bespoke and worked best that way. They didn't scale, but I still didn't like leaving people out. So if more people could make that kind of stuff, it seemed like a really good thing. I hit on the transformation piece because in defining experience design, I defined it as the creation of experiences for the purpose of entertainment, persuasion, recreation, or human enrichment, where the emotional journey of the individual or the group is the focus. And in writing that definition, I really honed in on that human potential, human enrichment transformation piece. I was like, ah, that's really what I care about. And in looking at a bunch of different experiences that fell into that category, the the core piece was transformation. And so for me, that's a, a newer discovery, I would say. I've been really working on that part of it maybe for the past two, two and a half years. Excellent. So if for people who maybe don't know Sextant Works, could you describe what that became slash was? Yeah. Uh, it, it's 
Um, I like to say it was a cross between a design studio and a Burning Man camp. We never had a Burning Man camp, but it sort of operated this way in that it was like a dysfunctional extended creative family that would make stuff together periodically. I co-founded it with Andy Austin, um, who I met because he was my neighbor in this somewhat notorious building in Dumbo where a lot of different underground event organizers and planners lived. And he and I did our first experience really um, purely out of inspiration because we stumbled upon an abandoned honeymoon resort in the Poconos and were, were so captivated by the place we decided to do something there. It was completely informed by the process of scouting the location and doing history research on the past and weird decrepit present of honeymoon resorts in the Poconos. And from that, yeah, we, we crafted what was an adventure. It was definitely immersive because it was on the property and you really felt the architecture and the history and the property of it. But it wasn't necessarily theater in that, like, people weren't really acting, um, but it wasn't a tour either because we let people kind of sink in and get into the mood. So it, it wasn't, the best thing I can call it was it was an adventure. And again, it went way better than we could have expected. I think over half the couples ended up having sex, which like seems obvious, but wasn't what we were designing for. And so that went so well, we just kind of kept it up. And I was really invested in having some sort of name or brand around what we were doing, because having participated in a lot of different other underground events or experiences or whatever, I just wanted it to, um, for everybody who participated and everybody who contributed to have something to point to that wasn't just a person or a couple of people. So we originally called it Wanderlust Projects, and what we did after the illicit couples retreat at the Honeymoon Resort was we did a photo scavenger hunt in the Domino Sugar Refinery, which now doesn't exist. It's been completely um, wiped off the uh, face of Brooklyn. And um, turned into condos. Yes, turned into condos. Um, we also did a um, infiltration of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. I think we did one other adventure. And those were all in the course of like four or five months. We really just kind of hit on something and were totally infected by it and had a lot of momentum. The next thing that happened after that was the Night Heron, which was a speakeasy in a dry water tower in Manhattan. Um, I had spent some time in water towers previously, either swimming in them um, or I had knew one person who actually lived in a dry water tower. So I had pictures of the inside of water towers. And Nathan saw one of the pictures and was just like, what the heck? And like suddenly was like, out all night, every night, for weeks, scouting dry water towers. Um, the Night Heron was very much inspired by a design principle that we had hit on in doing our previous events, which was this notion of generosity. We looked at what we were doing as a gift to the guests or the participants, and we never charged for tickets because we were doing this all illegally. We weren't getting permission to be in places, so as soon as we had a kind of ticket relationship with the guests, it felt like we were going to be in nebulous legal territory. The positive byproduct of doing that is that people were just even more over the moon, that like this was just some weird thing they got invited to and was like spectacular. So because that had such a profound emotional effect, it ended up informing how people got to the Night Heron, so you could only come as a gift of somebody who had already been. This was a good way for us to get the attendance to get really far beyond us. We didn't want it just to be for our friends, and yet inviting strangers would have also been pretty risky because um, it was a pretty out there experience. We needed to make sure that whoever was coming was up for it. So 
Uh, and we could then still kind of charge for admission somewhat indirectly while maintaining that gifting component. So that project got tons of attention. It really captured the public's imagination. Um, if I recall correctly, it was referenced on a Law and Order episode. It, it was, yes. Um, it was it, the Law and Order episode, I think, as all Law and Order episodes claim that it was not based on real life, and that was definitely not the case there. Um, which was, I mean, it was funny. Um, the They ended up even using the same band that Nathan had found to play in The Night Heron, um, which, which, you know... And I wasn't involved in those conversations, but as far as I could tell, everybody was happy for that because then they're getting paid for their music, you know? And so, like, it's all fine right. in the good end. For, but it's just know, good like, for them. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, it was very strange. Yeah. yeah, that sounds so surreal. Yes, it was very surreal. So that so so suddenly we were doing these, like, experiences for fun, and then suddenly it was, like, almost, like, very real for us, too, because it had so much exposure. We were suddenly getting all these inquiries about doing work for hire. Did you want that amount that of exposure to let the press in on what was happening? I always wanted that, in part because I had, again, participated in a lot of underground stuff in New York, and it had this um, just-for-us vibe about it that I just didn't like that much. Like, if it's if it's really about a particular group of people exploring something and doing something together, like, I get it, because it ends up being, like, too dangerous or too risky otherwise, but, like, not communicating and not sharing what you're up to, like, didn't make any sense to me. And I have a background in documentary arts. The first thing I did professionally was I was a photojournalist. So this notion of documenting what you're doing and finding ways to share it was really inherent in me. So from the beginning, we always wanted exposure, but it would always happen after we were, got away with something. It was just too risky otherwise. That's how... The very first thing we did worked, the Alyssa Couples Retreat. It got written up in a couple of blogs, so, like, really not much at all. And that's how the Night Heron worked. It got press after the fact. Yeah. So you never got caught? Um, nothing that I worked on directly involved anyone getting caught or hurt. Yeah. And I guess what kind of goes through your head as a creator when you are inviting people to trespass with you in terms of backup plans or if one of the neighbors gets angry? Uh, it, it just involves tons of preparation and a lot of nerve, and I have to give a lot of credit to um, my former collaborator, uh, Nathan, just because he's like incredibly good about that. So I think there was an extent to which we balanced each other out well, because I might be adventurous, but like a little more cautious in terms of that, and he you know, is super adventurous and always willing to push people's boundaries. And so I think us together managed to figure out what the right mix was. Um, and it just it involves tons and tons and tons of scouting and tons and tons of planning and also having an excellent team. Um, for all the projects that we did that we did for fun, everybody else did for fun too. So they were like very excited and jazzed about it. And we just did a very careful job of vetting people and making sure they could really like roll with changing plans in different circumstances and felt comfortable in these environments. It would not have been possible if we didn't have such an excellent crew. Um, so that went a long way. So some amount of, I guess, improvisation from a logistical standpoint is necessary for this kind of transgressive adventure? Yes, absolutely. And that, I think that's what kept it kind of interesting for me, definitely. Um, always being on your toes with that stuff and not repeating yourself. So did you notice the type of audience or attendees changing in terms of their 
attitudes from the beginning of the Night Heron more towards the end? I know that you you were earlier speaking about your concerns about it feeling like a little too like an exclusive club. Mm. And I think that was always an, an issue and it continued to come up and I think it's a it's a challenge with this nature of the work and that you just can't have everybody coming um, and it's not open access. So it creates a mystique about it, which I think helped us a lot, um, but I, I never quite felt totally comfortable with. Um, one thing that was consistent is we tried to avoid having an audience in terms of, or like there was an audience for the work, but in terms of participants, we'd always change it. So if somebody came to something and they were really ripe to come again, probably they would become part of the team. They would become part of the crew. They wouldn't come again as an attendee. Um, so we just didn't have very mean, many repeat attendees, even you know when we were kind of wrapping up the whole project towards the end, like the main like last things we were doing, like the people who were coming didn't know what they were getting into. I think the only exception to that was the Timothy Convention, which is an annual infiltration of the Waldorf Astoria, which as far as I know, Nathan is continuing to do. Um, and that's different because it was for a very particular audience in terms of it was for one person's social circle. So it was we were helping one person give a gift to their social circle, and they did kind of get good at it after a while, and as soon as we realized they were getting good at it, we changed the rules. And that helped a lot. So what happened after the Night Heron? What did you work on after that? Um, we, had, we did a project in Brazil, um, similarly about um, love motels there, because they're very common there. Um, we did a bunch of private commissions and private events. Um, some of the stuff we did involved work for charity galas. Um, a big, really important step we took after the Night Heron, we got tons of inquiries, was trying to figure out what our sweet spot actually was so that we could filter inquiries. And we figured out that it was um, generosity, location, intimacy, and transgression. If a project had all four of those qualities, it was really in our sweet spot. Most of the inquiries we got would, would hit on two, maybe three, but if they didn't really solidly hit on two or only sort of hit on two or didn't hit on any, we wouldn't touch it. So that led us to do some client work that we might not have picked otherwise because we had this ironclad filter we could put stuff through. So that's why we did work for charity galas because it had that generosity component and we would often bring elements of transgression into the design um, what else do we do? I, f I feel like we did so much stuff that like, kind of blurs together. Um, we did do this like one really giant private commission, which was um, primarily focused on an um, abandoned ferry boat on the north shore of Staten Island. Um, again, that was a private project, but it was great to kind of pull in a wider network of creators and artists um, and watch them in some ways... Some of them really advanced their careers through that project, which I'm really excited about. Um, for us, that project kind of broke us. It was just like a little bit too big, um, got in a little too far over our heads. And also at that point, we had just grown a lot through the process, and I realized I really liked doing client work. Um, and Nathan, I think, was better with customers. Um, so creatively, we're kind of going different ways. I also wanted to do this research piece and figure out how to share that. We were just like, there was a lot of stuff that was drawing us in different directions. It was painful to have to like break things down um, and part ways because in some ways I think the work we did together was really singular and I don't necessarily see myself doing that kind of stuff again. But it is great to be here at 
SY partners in part for that reason because we focus a lot on duos and how powerful a duo dynamic can be because a lot of our work is based on Charles and Ray Eames. And so coming into this context, I have that like deep, intimate, fraught, complicated perspective on what it actually means to be part of a duo. Mm -hmm. To have that creative partner who uh, compliments you but also probably drives you nuts sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. No, our, our dynamic was deeply unhealthy at points and it's difficult to look back on it and think about that and um, I think that that's probably part of the reason that stuff didn't last longer than it did. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, I look back on that. And, um, it's it's a weird thing to look back on, but I'm glad I can look back on it and it's not kind of animating what's going on. You know, I looked more into the history of Charles and Ray Eames and their dynamic, and I'm like, wow, a lot of that looks familiar. Um, once my mom compared me to Lee Krasner, who was the um, wife of Jackson Pollock, um, you know, dealing with all of his alcoholism and, like, inconsistencies and stuff. And it's, like, I, I recognize something in, like, these, like, dynamic, complicated duos, but it's not the 50s anymore, you know? I don't have to stay stuck in that. Um, but it did, it, it created some pretty great work, and for that I'm grateful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the next phase of your career, if you, I don't know if you want to call it a career, was this project that eventually led to patterns of transformation so yes. can you talk about that sure um the so i ended up looking at sex parties funerals and wilderness trips because at the heart those are all somehow about human enrichment and they all involve some sort of fundamental component of people changing and transforming um I remember this moment, um, I did most of the research in context of a graduate program at SVA um, called Design Research Writing and Criticism, and there was a moment when I had to put together a slide a slide deck and pitch it to my advisors, and I put like sex parties, funerals, and wilderness trips all on one slide, and I'm just like, what am I getting into, you know? There was that moment of reckoning where it's like, wait a minute. Like, right, now you know? that you've actually written it all down and put it in a single place and it's staring back at you. Yeah, well, that so that moment came before I did all the primary research. Mm -hmm. So I had done background reading in uh, anthropology of ritual and um, game design, which I have a background in. For a few years, I did a lot of game design. Um, and so I had done the background research, and I knew I wanted to look at sex parties, funerals, and wilderness trips, but there was this moment before I fully dive in where I'm just like, what am I getting myself into? Um, and it ended up being a really beautiful process. Uh, the core insight I had, which definitely informed, I think, a lot of the Sex Networks projects, is that transformation requires risk um, and real risk, and that it's only in having the supportive structure of an experience um, especially if it involves other people that you can go through it with, that you can even approach that risk that is too chaotic and too threatening to deal with outside the context of that experience. But by confronting that risk, some, that some part of you kind of reconfigures itself or becomes more alive. Sometimes we opt into those risks, um, as might be the case with the sex party. Sometimes we don't when it comes to death. But regardless, there's still a way in which you can convene an experience around those moments um, to ensure that some sort of healthy transformation takes place. Uh, yeah, so so that's all available online. Um, and I bring that into my work here at SY Partners a little bit because sometimes when we're dealing with big organizations, the leadership teams of those organizations might be um, 
having a hard time confronting something themselves. And so it's very strange for me to have done this very out there research and then be at some of the most influential organizations in America today and like implementing them on their leadership teams. It's, it's fascinating and weird and not where I would end up, not where I thought I would end up. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So to take a step back, uh, you talked about experience design being creating something for the purpose of entertainment, persuasion, recreation, or human enrichment. Do you find that transformation is possible in all of those areas? Um, I have been associating it with the human enrichment part in terms of the recreation, persuasion, or entertainment. Like I, th- I think it's certainly possible, but it's not necessarily the core thing or the the focus of the experience. Um, you know, like entertainment is meant to be some sort of diversion. Um, you can still like get a lot out of a diversion, and so you might be surprised by being unlocked or transformed in that. Um, I think it's unlikely or even irresponsible to force that upon people, especially if they're coming into an experience with an expectation of entertainment. Um, and does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. And then part of your definition also was about how it could be for an individual or a group, Mm -hmm. and one thing that I've noticed when attending some of these immersive theater works is you, the participant, are not necessarily the star of the story, but you can view yourself as, like, part of the chorus or a sidekick or a helper or even a guardian. So I'm wondering, like, maybe you may not get all the way to transformation, but, like, what do we call, like, the the smaller links on the transformation chain? Like, have you thought about that? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think there's always something that kind of gets you there, and that core experience might be more of the things I'm studying, but you're right, there's there's probably some sort of chain, and I don't know what exactly to call those. I mean, there, there, I do think that there is an important difference between, like, a primarily aesthetic experience and something that is... Um, more fundamentally human. So like many of the experiences I'm dealing with, there's not a fiction involved, you know, whereas with most theater there is. And you need that fiction in order to, get, again, get in touch with something you might not otherwise be in touch with. And so that's the thing that's in common there. Um, oh, gosh, now I forgot your question. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it does make sense because we talk about these containers for yes. experiences. So there's the space and the time and the actual right. activity itself. Right. Um, I'm wondering if you've ever done any alternate reality games or ARGs, ARXs. Yeah. So I know that there's one happening in Los Angeles right now. I think they're on their seventh or eighth month, perhaps longer. Oh, wow. So I, have you ever heard of some sort of experience happening that long as it applies to your work? Mm. Um, I personally have not. I have not either designed or participate in anything that is that persistent or has that kind of time duration about them. Um, I'd be very curious to hear from people who do make them of like how they manage the magic circle in those cases. Container, magic circle, whatever you want to call it. I do talk about the magic circle in patterns of transformation as being this really important thing. And so what happens when you are engaged in something that starts to really seep out into the rest of your life, right? Where the dissolving of those boundaries is exactly what makes it powerful. And I, and sometimes it does. For me, it ends up being a little bit of an ethics question. Um, and I see these really powerful 
ARG-like experiences taking over people's lives, and that can be delightful and wonderful. But what's the responsibility of like the designer or the creator in that? If you if you're letting somebody fall deep into something, um, right? Like to the point where maybe it becomes detrimental to their health, right? Or they're drawing away from their regular social circle. I mean, like this kind of stuff comes up a lot in terms of internet addiction and gaming. So it's a lot of similar problems. Um, yeah. And, and so that's why it's, I think the, the step of closing the magic circle is super important so that you can create a delineation between whatever goes on inside the experience and then people's everyday lives. And then if you, as a designer, help them actually step out of the experience, um, then it's up to them to negotiate what they want to bring out. But you're not kind of like... You're not foisting it on them. Yeah. You're not pushing them in either direction. So for you as a designer, how do you get people to come into the circle and then how do you gently let them back out into the world? Uh, so I mean there's so there's the trespass adventures and the transgressive placemaking we did with Sexton Works and then there's the experiences that I studied and then there's the work I'm doing now in the context of management consulting and I think they're all very different. In the case of Sextant Works, the magic circle was so damn important um, because we needed people to behave in a certain way in order to maintain their safety. And the context was so overpowering that it created its own magic circle. So what we did in order to prepare people for stepping across that boundary, and that boundary is very clear. It's like you're trespassing or you're not. Like suddenly you're trespassing and now like, you know, we're, we're having a certain kind of experience together and you need to be with the program to have that experience safely. We would do a lot to filter people so that it was the right kind of people and coming with the right kind of intention and doing our best to warn them ahead of time what they were exposed to so that they're always consenting to the risk. Sometimes the risk might involve something that we didn't want to name specifically because it would ruin the surprise. Like I think about the Domino Sugar Refinery and in that case like there was this sucrose goo like spread across some of the floors that was like so thick and smelled so sweet it was nauseating but we couldn't have people showing up with dainty shoes in those cases um and in order to make sure they wore the right footwear i can't remember what exactly the invite said but we said something about mud or whatever which was like not true but anticipating mud would make you prepared so it was all of those kinds of things to make sure people showed up in a way where they could participate fully and knew how to engage. And then in terms of letting them go, there was usually a closing moment of like trying to come back together. Um, oftentimes those were really beautiful moments that Nathan or, would orchestrate in terms of like music or some sort of climax or whatever, or, or a thoughtful goodbye um, where the participation kind of stops, like the adventure and the exploring kind of stops. You settle, you brace yourself, and then you kind of go back into the real world. But there, we would sometimes do this thing where we would we would settle and stop before letting them back out and then just release people. And that moment of slight disorientation can be really good for amplifying the wonder, but there's still a clear, like, you're, you're back There's a delineation, yes. yeah. Um, in the context of the experiences I studied in terms of the sex parties, funerals, and wilderness trips, they use very different ways to go about drawing the magic circle. The best sex parties I went to did it very much spatially so that there was a kind of buffer zone where you're inside the experience, but you're not necessarily like in the face of like all sorts of sexual scenes going on that you might not 
be interested in watching or need a break from. And so this ability to step away from the action without fully stepping out um, was really important and that you could navigate spatially to dictate your own experience in terms of how much you wanted to engage or see or participate. Um, in the case of funerals, the best funeral directors that I have worked with um, think very carefully about like that emotional release like at the end, not dissimilar to the um, trespass adventures, as well as um, how you get people into the experience so they're dealing with their grief really quickly, which is a wild thing to put people through. They're actually trying not to make it safe because the riskiest thing in those contexts is something people are bringing with them. Like, yes, confronting the body is scary, but the most troubling thing is the grief that you carry inside. And so instead of letting people hide that grief, like, how can you pronounce it right away? That's, like, a very radical move. And the way you do that once you step into the funeral, I think, varies. But that's been the most really, like, wonderful way I've seen funeral directors deal with that. Those are the outliers. It's not the normal thing. Um, again, there's, yeah, there's a lot of use of space in terms of stepping out of the space, but, like, making this moment at the beginning, at the end, but also thinking about where people are spatially. Um, yeah, I mean, so drawing back on my experience at the Night Heron, I remember meeting you, and you looked very, very serious. And oh, you had a walkie-talkie, and there was some moment where I think we all had to give, give verbal consent that we understood the rules, and then that kind of felt like it drew the group together because mm -hmm. we were all agreeing on doing this illicit activity together. And to go back to your point about kind of returning to the world, I think we each went through a set of doors one at a time. Mm -hmm. So in the lead up to that, it was like, oh, okay, I feel like I'm in my transitional period. I'm not the first person to go through the doors. I can see the other people leaving. And then to kind of anticipate the moment, experience the moment, then you are disoriented for a few seconds. And then I think your exact instructions were just go with the flow and pretend like you've been walking on the sidewalk all along. And mm -hmm. then that also kind of felt transgressive. So you're right. Like that, there was that moment of disorientation, magic, wonder, and then what the heck just happened. Mm -hmm. Someone asked me to describe the night heron recently, and I literally couldn't. I had such trouble articulating, like, all of those emotions. And so, yeah, I think... Um, just, we at No Presidium have been thinking a lot about care and safety and, like, how you bring people into something and how you bring someone out and making sure that, like, when they're in the circle, they're taken care of. So I think that a lot of the work that you've been doing um, really speaks to that. So That's great. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, the relationship between, like, risk and care, I think, is a super... Um, vibrant one and it's it's unfortunate when experiences that do have some teeth to them like get a little bit too too safe you know mm -hmm. then you kind of strip out what's important but bringing people into that risky place can it, it confers a lot of responsibility on the designer um, but anybody who's really willing to like step into that responsibility it's a very like humbling place to be in I think it opens you up in a great way um, it's cool to hear. And uh, in terms of your experience of the Night Heron, I'm sure if you see, see other people who've been, it's really easy to discuss, right? Um, whereas if you encounter people who haven't been there, you're, it sounds like you're speechless, right? Yeah, it, it was very difficult to describe. I Like I could describe the setting and the situation, 
but the emotions that it brought out or what it felt like to be there, that part was really hard to put into words to a friend who didn't get a chance to go. Yeah, and I think that that can be really consistent with these transformational or um, transcendental experiences. Having a point of reference with someone else, whether it's that experience specifically or something adjacent, suddenly opens up connection and communication. I mean, I think it's certainly the case with death. You know, it feels like impossible to talk about unless you've like been there or been through some of it. Um, I think that, yeah. That's just one example. But there's something precious about having gone there. So this is something, and I think somebody asked me this question recently. Mm, yeah. About having, they went through a thing, they went through an experience, and it was one of these instances where it ended up being a transformational experience, but it was billed as a recreation experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't know enough about it to know whether or not it was a mistake of the designers or what. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of inclined right. to give the designers a lot of responsibility yeah. because then it improves our craft. Um, so she went through this transformational experience that she wasn't necessarily looking for and wasn't prepared for. And it sounded like part of the way she coped with it at the end was by bonding with other people who had been through it. That, unfortunately, that kind of transformation, that's trauma, right? And so that's this, this transformation piece. It, it can be tricky because the dark side of it is trauma because trauma is a kind of transformation. So when you think about what people do to cope with trauma and how they bond with each other, like how can you bring that kind of more adjacent to the experience so this risk doesn't actually push them over? Um, yeah, it's, it seems really tricky because at for a lot of what you've been describing, there is some level of discomfort. And as a designer, you're like, what's your hope about how people deal with that discomfort but still like get that end benefit? And it, so some of this has to do with whether or not the, um, the, tran- the nature of the transformation is dramatic. Um, Oh, no, now I'm forgetting my own terms. It's There's dramatic, there's acute, and then there's... Um, oh, repetitive. Repetitive. And I think identifying the nature of the transformation is really helpful for answering those kinds of questions. So if you're dealing with acute transformation, that's this kind of like bad, traumatic, upsetting stuff that happens outside the context of the experience, but you're designing to help the person reckon with. The way you support somebody through that is very different than a dramatic experience, which I would suspect most of the... Um, experiences that no proscenium is dealing with where they're like a one event kind of thing people go through it like stuff builds and then like by the end they realize they've been through something interesting and fascinating and they leave kind of dazed in this state of wonder and so there's one way to take care of people in that context and then there's this repetitive thing which might be what this ARG you're describing is like where there's many touch points and it's through going through those many touch points and sinking deeper and deeper into something that the transformation happens. So I think the first step with figuring out your strategy for care is to identify what what the nature of the transformation is, how you're going to go about it. And that helps you construct the magic circle. That helps you figure out what the experience structure is. For me, it was a big breakthrough in the research to delineate these different kinds of transformation. So I guess just to build on that, do you think that transformation is always positive? I had some really wonderful pushback from um, uh, my dear friend Christian Howard on this, who um, was a great sounding board through the entire process of doing the research. And because um, one of the things I was drawing from was um, Chiksim Malahayu's flow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
which is a wonderful book and really encourage people to read it. But what my friend Christian identified is that this state of flow um, is it's a it's a peak state. It takes tons of energy to be in flow. And when you think more broadly in society about who gets to opt into flow and that peak state and who is forced into it because life is so difficult and so hard all the time that they have to be focused and they have to be in flow to get by, there is a quality of rest that I think is like really important and restorative. So it has a lot to do with audience and it has a lot to do with intention and why the transformation is even valuable to begin with. Um, that pushback that he gave me really kind of stopped me in my tracks and was, was pretty amazing to think about. Um, yeah, like who, who, is, who is so constantly in a state of like transformation and alert um, that that's not the right. thing to offer them, Right, you like, know? you know, how much transformation can a single human take through yes. like their entire life or even just a couple of years? Um, it just kind of makes me think about a lot of these very classic fairy tales or origin stories where the villain was created because of this thing that happened. They went through a very bad experience. They were transformed, mm. but for the negative side. Uh, yeah, and and that's the... So they, oh, when the, right, this is the negative transformation. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I think it kind of goes to intention. I mean, a lot of the transformation I looked at where the transformation's desirable in some way is because we've been estranged from something somehow. And that's when I think the the transformation gets you back in touch with something that you've been estranged with and then changes your relationship to the world and your everyday life. That can be super enriching. In terms of these negative transformations, like I'm thinking about villains, right? It's right. like, you know, it's like some people are like, I hate to say it, like, you know, some people are kind of rotten and you just kind of like have to manage. And so what kind of transformation do those people need? Like probably it might be like getting in touch with like the ne negative ramifications of what they're doing. I've done that here. I've designed experiences that are about getting leaders to confront the negative consequences of their behaviors. Super tricky. Um, really gratifying, though, especially when it gets the group to bind together in a really wonderful way. Um, I had another thought about that negative side of transformation. I lost it. Yeah, I, I was back. just thinking, well, maybe it amplifies something like anger or greed uh, yeah. or lust or, oh, yeah, I can do this thing and not get caught. Therefore, there are no consequences. Uh, I Therefore, see, I would yes. like to do this more. Yeah, or, which is, which, you know, I could be a tricky example of that with the trespassing stuff. It's like, oh, I can get away with this. Like, why not keep doing it? Um, especially when you're, like, not conscientious or, like, you know, estranged from the impact, right? It's not apparent in front of you. I, I'm not sure I have a good general answer for that. I think it's the kind of thing that's like really easy to interrogate in context. Um, there is certainly a conceit with the transformation stuff that getting back in touch with certain things is, is fundamentally good or fundamentally valuable. And maybe that perspective is flawed. Like there could be limits to that, as my friend Christian pointed out in terms of, you know, constantly being in transformation. It's like you lose sense of who you are and it's hard to establish things or like gain momentum with stuff. Definitely. So, um, aside from your friend Christian, what's some of the other feedback response that you've gotten once you put this framework out into the world? I, I had a lot of people, the initial people who read it were really excited about it. Um, uh, I think, you know, Vinny DePonto, who I know has been interviewed earlier, said he read the entire thing twice straight through and was like really moved by it, um, which is a big compliment coming from him. I really love his work. 
uh, a lot of the people that I profiled in it um, have used it as a really good tool to like explain their work in a different way, which is exciting for me because I really want this to be a tool of creators. Um, I haven't gotten tons of like direct um, criticism, and I don't know if that's because like it hasn't reached a wide enough audience yet, or the criticism's going on, and I'm not privy to it. I'm sure it's out there. Um, it could just be the subject matter that you drew from feels so extreme. esoteric that there's not like a a built-in audience of people to say, ah, she's talking about my field. Oh yes, no, that's true, and I, I have had. A lot of that, well, but how does this relate? Or how do we make it practical? And I'm just like, oh, I'm like the worst person to do that. I'm like always kind of like finding my way to the fringes in these weird dark corners. So you're, I think that that is a drawback of the work in that I am looking at very extreme experiences and I am drawing from material across many different fields, absolutely. Um, so I think that that might be a good second step for the project in terms of making it more relatable or having much more concrete and specific design recommendations. Um, I mean, having gone through this, now people can put like experience design challenges in front of me and I can diagnose them and in many cases improve them like that. You know, no time at all. I'm like, wow, this is a clear product of like me having figured something out. I'm not entirely sure I've communicated that fully yet. Um, Right, because you don't want to reduce this body of work down to uh, a checklist yeah. or a rubric, because a lot of it is very nuanced, very situational. Um, in terms of the research, as you were going to these sex parties, as you were attending funerals of people you didn't know, were the other participants aware that you were there in a more observational or research capacity, or were you just kind of like, I'm a friendly face in the crowd? A lot of people I talked to, especially in the sex party context, because that was super social, um, I would let them know that I was doing research just so they knew. I certainly didn't write about anybody that didn't give me their consent to write about them. Uh, on the wilderness trip, I did say I was doing research, and most people didn't care. I think there was a couple people there who were like a little bit like, oh, I need to have my private experience. And again, I didn't write about any of them, but I regret if there's an extent to which me being transparent about that left them feeling more exposed in the moment. Um, yeah, it's a tricky balance because you want to kind of understand what's happening for everyone in the group and then how the group behaves as a group, but at the same time, you're also a participant. Yes, no, definitely. And I think what what I went through personally is that, and it's like this process where sometimes we trick ourselves into doing the things that are right for us before we realize what we're doing. The process of having to dissolve sextant works for me was very tragic and really painful and involved a bunch of twists and turns. So, and I started my process of going into the research not expecting that I would have to do that. I thought that this project would really help inform and bolster what was going on with sextant works and that was not the case at all. So, there was that moment after I did my background reading and decided what case studies I was going to work on where I just dove in head first. And so looking back, I realized that I was dealing with my own sense of loss and confusion by going deep into these experiences that were fundamentally transformational and ended up being super enriching. So there's definitely like a personal backstory there about what worked for me and and yeah, it's confusing kind of going through that and then having to like disentangle myself enough to share insights, but that's that really drove things a lot, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the those activities also seem incredibly intimate and personal, so I don't even know how you can kind of 
disentangle like the you you and the researcher you right. seems very difficult. Well, and I, I think that this is one of the feminist undertones of the project in that my body and my emotions are as much a tool of research as you know observation and background reading. And I was cognizant of that going in, that all of these experiences are super physical, they're super embodied. Uh, yeah, and that I, I take that as a feminist approach in that like I am open to my body being like a tool of research here and like what I go through being part of it. I didn't necessarily get super personal in what I was writing up and I, I think it just it's, some of it does feel almost too personal, but the insights are there and the insights inform the work. So what are you going to do next with the patterns? Uh, that's a great question. I'm still trying to figure out how to make it useful and actionable for folks. Maybe people are putting it into use and I haven't noticed. I would love to just be in dialogue with more people so I can figure out how to hone it and make it better. The, you know, I had one audience at school that mostly didn't get it, and that's fine. In some cases, the friction helped me make it better. Um, there are other people I've heard from who've been really excited about it. I've even, like, I, once I went to a dinner um, at this uh community this that I'm part of called Orbital um, and the woman at the dinner had done this really cool thing at the opening where she kept everybody cordoned off on one side until the food was all ready and then she let us in and the food was all covered up with one person's name on each plate and what we had to do was we had when the timer started we had to barter for a plate of food with what we had and then we sat down and ate together and I went over to her afterwards I was like that was super fun and interesting I'm really glad you did it that way and she was like that was all inspired by patterns of transformation I was like oh amazing you know she took something that seemed like it didn't have any risk to it right which was a dinner and she was like oh there is some social risk in this how can I like force that at the beginning so everybody enjoys the rest I was like so cool to like stumble into something that I actually helped inspire so that's a small example of that and I'm sure there's more of it out there um, but yeah, I have gotten a lot of feedback where it's like, oh, like, how do I apply this? What do I do? And I, I mean, in some ways, I wonder if it's not unlike your experience of going to the night heron and not knowing how to talk about it unless it's with other people. There's something about the work that resonates with the people who like need it and who it makes sense to. Um, so it's like, you know, I, I don't know if the right move is to find more of those people and like get it to more of them because they're. You're right, it's not an obvious audience, it's not a specific domain, or if it's to keep revising the work so that it gets more accessible. I'm not quite sure. Are there um, any kinds of specific people that you would like to hear from? Mm. Uh, who have I been dealing with? I mean, I definitely have been really moved by the alternative morticians that I've been in touch with, and I would like to be in touch with them more. Um, and again, this is just about me being proactive and getting out into, you know, the, the um, alternative death scene is super vibrant. Um, so I just have to get out there more. I'm like kind of busy with my day job because I actually do enjoy my day job. So I have to get out there more. Who else? Um, I mean, there's a lot of um, arts practitioners, uh, probably people who are part of your audience at No Proscenium that might be grappling with something or they might, you know, or have questions about how better to take care of the audience or there's a, a topic or a move that might feel too risky and they don't know how to approach it and if this work can help them get there I'd be super excited and I'd love to like hear how that went even better if like they try something and it doesn't work like I definitely want to hear about that because in, in many ways this is my attempt to to 
share. You know, Sextant yeah. Works is all about gifting, and this mm-hmm. is, like, my big attempt to do a gift. So it's like, who's it right for? And again, like many of the Sextant Works adventures, it might only be right for a very small, specific group of people, and those people's minds were blown, and, you know, they have this beautiful reference point. Maybe it's like that again. Maybe it's just right for just, you know, a few people who will be really changed by it. Yeah, and hopefully they're out there somewhere, potentially listening to this. Um, do you have any final advice for people who might be looking at the patterns? Mm. Uh, my advice is um, there's well, there's looking at the patterns and then there's using the patterns. In terms of looking at the patterns, there is like a long part of personal narrative of like what it was like for me to go through this stuff. If that doesn't work for you, skip it. Like go to the creating patterns page where I attempt to draw out a series of steps and like dig into that and chew into that. There's it really is a hypertext document. So like if it's not not all parts of it are working for you, great. Skip to the parts that are. Um, in terms of people who are creating experiences, that that core question of like what's the risk and what's the gift, focus really hard on those. And I find that it's very beneficial to like not actually do tons of creation until you've answered those clearly. And once you've answered those, so many other decisions are going to be so much easier. Yeah, that's my biggest advice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks. This was fun. I'm really honored. Great. Once again, I want to thank Ida Benedetto for being our guest on the show and for Catherine for holding down host duties today. You can find Patterns of Transformation, Designing Sex, Death, and Survival in the 21st Century, which is Ida's big research paper about this, at PatternsofTransformation.com. I suggest you read it if you are a serious student of experience design. There you go. Um, yeah, I got to I got to see Ida give a talk uh, at this thing last year that uh, Oculus and Kaleidoscope did and it was excellent and right then there I was like oh my god we got to get her on the show at some point so thank you again Catherine for uh, facilitating that that buzzing sound you may or may not have heard um that was the dryer um yes we're in my home I'm I'm in the middle of packing um we're going up to the Bay Area uh in order to uh both see the family and to be there on a long stretch while we uh prep the immersive design summit at the top of January uh, that's coming together real well. Uh, as some of you may or may not have noticed, uh, we just announced some surprise guests, uh, those being uh, Diana Williams of Lucasfilm, specifically the X-Lab and the Story Group, and uh, Curtis Hickman, one of the co-founders of The Void, who are coming to talk about Secrets of the Empire, the Star Wars virtual reality um, location-based entertainment attraction, um, the hyper-reality entertainment attraction that's being installed um, at uh, Disney Springs right now. It's also in London. Uh, It's going to be at Anaheim at Downtown Disney and apparently also in Las Vegas and at uh, the Glendale Galleria, which is my mall. Um, To say that that I'm ecstatic about this uh, would be to uh, be an understatement. I will not subject you to the sounds of the porg right now. Uh, just go back and listen to the end of last episode if you want to know what the feeling sounds like. Um, yeah, this is awesome. 
I'm uh, we we've been sitting on this news for so long that it's like blase to me. It's like oh yeah, we did that, we got that, they got that. So um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna over I'm not gonna go over the list of everyone who's speaking because at this point it just feels a little cruel. Um, we wish we could hold it in you know Moscone Center and have everyone who wanted to come see come see, but uh, we're bootstrapping this and you know we have no money, so uh, we're 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 living off favors uh, and trying to do right by everybody. So um, that's that's on that side of things. Um, some more stuff that's coming down the pike. Uh, we've been doing AMAs over in the Slack. The Slack, which has blown up thanks to the IDS, uh, we're we're nearing 400 people in the Slack now. Um, two weeks ago, we had less than 300 people. It will continue to grow. It's a great place to connect with folks, and uh, it's really there for you to use. We hold the AMAs to try and kind of create little events that will draw people in. There's still, you know, chicken information and whatnot, but it's a great place to do discussions. So is everything immersive if you, like, prefer to hang out on Facebook? Um, just, you know, I, I, Facebook has its issues. So, you know, just know that there's, there's another place for us. There's a place I'd sing, but I can't right now. In fact, I've got to pause for a quick second and I now have to edit out a cough. Um, yeah, I encourage you to swing by the Slack. Um, and if you're someone who used to be on the Slack and haven't been to it in a while, I'll swing on by, check it out. Hail the cab, find out what's going on down at the old No Presidium Slack. Um, you can uh, find links to that uh, in the show notes here, and also we'll plaster them around uh, elsewhere. Um, it's not, it, it's not just, you can't just like type in something. It's not that easy. I wish it was. You, actually, there is something, but it, it, it's too many, too many letters. So just don't, just look for a link, for the love of God. Um, what else is up, uh, Mr. Low Energy? I haven't had coffee yet. Can you tell? Um, hello. Kate Lane had a birthday. Happy birthday, Kate. Um, let's see. What else? Oh, yeah. Lust was this past weekend. Um, that was interesting. Um, you know, nothing nothing shakes up the L.A. scene quite like a uh, production from uh, the Tension crew. And, um, there's been a lot of talk on a couple of different axes. Um, disclosure, I was roped into being a gag for the, uh, they did a special, like all, like not all, but like a a cadre of the hardcore ARX players were given like the last slot on the last night. And they like did like a different version of the show. And, um, Darren Lynn Bowsman, uh, the creator of Tension, um, he he got me to do a gag uh, for that crew, basically just like to like go go somewhere in the space and um, and and act like I was upset by something and then just storm out. Um, and given that a lot of the people in that crew, uh, um, well, a few of them are, are, are good friends, uh, and others of them are, are acquaintances who I'm friendly with, I I wanted to give them. Um, I wanted to give them a little surprise. I was like, this sounds, sounds like fun. This sounds funny. Um, particularly cause it meant, uh, tormenting Brian Bishop a little. Um, and, and nothing, nothing says love like, uh, tormenting your brothers. Uh, so, um, cause that's, that's the world. That's the world of tension for you, baby. Uh, so we did that and, um, I'm, I'm not at Liberty to, to give this cause I don't know what the storyline beats would be. I'm not, if I say anything like, oh, well this happened upstairs, like it would just be wrong in terms of the story. And if I told you what actually happened, 
um, you just be like, oh, that's, oh, that's just, is that all there is? And I'd have to be like, yeah, that's show business, baby. Um, but, uh, Sean, Sean Rader, um, the, who's also in the community, uh, you know, the next day was like, Hey, um, I'm assuming that was part of the show. If so, good job. If not, I hope you're okay. So I really appreciated that with Sean. And the funky thing was, is I had to like keep my mouth shut for a couple of days. Um, about the gag. There's also a lot of talk on the other side, getting serious face comes down for a second, about um, whether the show was really clear about, um, you know, uh, consent rules uh, and safe words. We've got a lot of reports that uh, for some runs, the safe word was not communicated. People were told they could leave at any time, but they weren't given the safe word, which was coward. Uh, I went through the show earlier on Sunday night, and my experience was that I was given the safe word uh, um, during the uh, one of the preambles uh, once we were inside the space. And on top of that, I knew, I knew, I knew that I could say no to things and and not instantly be ejected, even though the show was telling people that you know if you don't go along with stuff, we will we will remove you. It was a very large conversation for us to have about this stuff because different audiences want different things from this production in particular. Um, and the ambitions of the production are, are, are serious ambitions and they want to be accessible to a, a large group of people. And because of that, they wind up onboarding a lot of folks in and we hear there's, there's a range of reactions from people being giddy about the what the fuckness of it all um, because it's very emotionally transgressive, um, sort of emotional trespass experience, if you will, um, to people who are just affirm like, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable with what I wound up doing. Um, and these are all really valid things that we need to grapple with as a community. Uh, they're things that the production needs to grapple with. Um, I come from a privileged place in this, in that I, I know how much insurance, um, the show carries. I know for a fact they aren't going to do certain things to me. And because I'm an invited guest and I'm not paying, if I say no and get ejected, Right. If that was if that was a consequence that was really going to happen to me, I I don't lose anything. Um, I don't I don't have you know cash skin in the game as it were, um, which creates an entirely different experience for me than it does for someone who's you know, dropped 150 bucks um, and and thinks that you know their their ride will come to an end. Um, I think there are approaches to the design here. And there's this thing to know, like there, there's there's a moment in this um, in this show where some people were tracked to a place where they were told to disrobe and uh, you know prepare themselves for a, a ceremony that involved being naked. And someone I know uh, had done this and had like you know kind of vague booked about it, and uh, or they had been tracked that way. And I said, well, can you tell me what's up? And they said, well, you know, they they did this thing, and then I said, like I. You know, I didn't say no, but I said I'd prefer not to. And they pushed back a little bit. And then they said, that's okay. You can you can eject me. And then the story continued. They didn't make them comply with that. 
but they continued along that track uh, or some version of that track. So when I walked in, I, I just, I knew that if I said no, if I got tracked in there, uh, I'd, I'd probably continue along with that part of the story. So the weird thing is I said, yes, uh, I said yes, because I knew I could say no. And I, I honestly don't know if I would have said yes, if I didn't know that I could say no, it made me comfortable to know that I actually had the ultimate power. And so I was able to make an affirmative choice and I got body issues. So it's not like I'm comfortable being naked in front of people. Um, I was awkward. There's actually nothing more awkward than being naked in front of a closed per- clothed person who is standing inch away from you and is making eye contact, except for the fact that I can not blink for up to three minutes at a time. So <laughs> every time an actor plays a staring game with me, <laughs> I train myself in my 20s to not blink. So I'm really sorry. You're always going to lose. Um, and that 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 got me over my uh, my my sense of shame. Um, although I had some, I mean, I I'll go in. I'll probably write about it. Um, I'll go into it in depth. Um, but I recognize that my experience is very singular. So you know, when people ask me, "Did you like it?" I'd be like, "Yeah, I had a, I, I really did. I got to challenge myself. Um, I, I had all of the positive effects that you're supposed to have at this thing." But I also know that that's not everyone's experience of this. Um, so we got to talk. We got to talk as, as, as a group. Um, and uh, I, hope, I hope these are things that uh, the production company is looking at um, in, in absolute deed. All right, that's enough philosophizing for now. Uh, we will do some writing about it. Uh, we've got some travel days here and uh, then we'll be stabilized again. So probably look for it in uh, the new week might have more than one piece because um, I've asked someone who's had had like the opposite experience to, to write as well. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, do full disclosure uh, about everything. You know, it's it's a it's a weird position to be, um, you know, taking part in the behind the scenes activities, uh, which is why I did not review. Thank you very much, uh, Ricky Briganti of Inside the Magic for doing the review. Um, you also notice that like some of these questions are raised uh, lightly in his review and then in some uh, responses to his piece. I just listened back to how I sound for a second there. I sound terrible. Uh, I got lots to do. You have holiday time to spend with your families uh, as I do. Uh, I'm going to see my cat. I'm excited. Um, yeah. Thank you all so much. Um, thank you for being part of this community. Thank you for being on this journey with us. Um, next week's show, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna do some end of the year nonsense and hopefully we're going to do that with, uh, with the help of a lot of our friends. So, uh, if you've got any end of the year stuff you, uh, want to say, um, toss it our way. Hit me up, Noah at nopersinium.com. All right. How to find us out in the great big world. We're at no proscenium on Twitter. We're at no proscenium on Facebook. We're at no underscore proscenium on Instagram. Catherine, thank you so much for holding down the social media as you do. We're no proscenium.com. 
where Anthony and Catherine and myself uh, keep the website going along with pitching in from Jessica, uh, who's been abroad of late. Um, we've got a new Gumroad set up here. So there's tip jars, which will deploy as individual tip jars for individual authors. Uh, that's how we're going to handle it. There's also the Patreon, patreon.com slash nopresidium, uh, which you can back uh, to help uh, support our, our overall efforts. going to do a little restructuring soon because I want to make sure that the local area chiefs are getting some of the stipend money i uh, probably got to incorporate oh boy it's gonna be fun um and uh, yeah i look forward to my taxes next year um what else are there in the world uh that's the, oh the slack yeah i'll look for links and all those places to join the slack because the slack is popping oh my goodness oh my goodness it's finally what i wanted it to be all along and um and if you come back uh i swear it'll be good to you no that sounds wrong that sounds wrong. I swear you'll get my Ben solo, not my Kylo Ren. Um, all right. Um, I'm not even on cold medication. I'm not making sense anymore. The music for no proscenium of course is by Chris Porter of the speakeasy society and our sustaining backers are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, Yan Budman and Lonnie hands on. And yes, I actually, I forgot it the first time. Uh, there you go. Fixing it all until next time. I'll see you at the show. 